down and it turned green. I sound tall now. All right, so I teach Gracie's survival tactics at the police department. Uh, I'm, they invited me to be a, a, the guy that teaches the second shift guys, but for my hobby, I study Tent Planet. So if you're familiar with those uh, no-gi, radical leg-locking guys, I'm, that's the crowd that I'm in. Uh, Sean Applegate does Tent Planet Atlanta. May not be a better teacher of leg locks than him and Chase Hanna on the planet. So if you're a jujitsu guy, that, that's, that's cool. Uh, my role with the Huntsville Police started out as a volunteer chaplain. I uh, started when I was 29, and that year they assigned me to the tactical team, and I'm embedded with the team. I'm not a shooter. I'm not an operator. I have a Ninja Turtle vest, and then I go hang out with them when they go do things. And as a result of my embeddedness with the team, I get to teach some at the academy, and then recently they've asked me to teach the uh, crisis intervention training for the officers when they respond to mental illness. And so I do the mental health portion of the CIT, and then I do the de-escalation training. And then I, I wear some other hats for those guys. I have a background in adventure therapy, so I'm the de facto rappel master for your local SWAT team. And so if you're standing on the edge of a building attached to a very tiny rope, I can talk to you about Jesus and nobody minds. It's really, really, really cool. Uh, we had a captain years ago who was extremely religious, uh, a man who was dedicated to his, his version of faith, and, and he did some things uh, on the north end of town for a family, and based on the fact that he was sharing his faith and they were impressed with him being unapologetic about his discipleship, they made him a ceramic bust of Jesus but the Jesus they made was a little white you know people who aren't white think we're chalk white people who aren't brown think people are chocolate colored and so they made him this big bust of Jesus and they painted the hair and they painted the mustache and we got called into the captain's office I'm not saying we were in trouble but the whole SWAT team piles into Captain Presley's office and Dave Baggett one of our operators looks at this bust of Jesus and says I didn't know you were a Travis Tritt fan. <laughs> That's not the Jesus we're talking about. I always talk about, hey, don't, don't show me a picture of Anglo-Saxon Jesus. Jesus was Jewish. Does not look like you think he looked like, probably. He lived outside most of his life. And from age 12 to age 30... He lived with Mary and Joseph and probably worked in a carpenter shop. Now, whether that was carpenter like we think of building things out of wood, tables, chairs, or, or oxen yoke, or whether it was heavy stone construction, he was a man that worked with his hands and he lived outside, lived in the wilderness. So, so this Anglo-Saxon guy that you see in the Italian paintings, that's, that's not the Jesus we're talking about. And we, we have very little information about his actual physical attributes, about any characteristic, the book of Isaiah will say there was nothing in his appearance that made him attractive to anybody. And so he was your run-of-your-mill average Jewish man. So how do we come up with the attributes of Jesus to help us be men and men of God? And, and I don't think the two things have to be mutually exclusive. I think sometimes we, we start thinking about people who go to church and, and, and genteel uh, and I, I don't think those things are mutually exclusive. Uh, I, I think that when you start understanding what it is to be a spiritual man, 
and a man of God, there's some things that we have to understand and that we have to balance. So the first thing we want to talk about is power versus influence. Now, the reason I teach the crisis intervention stuff at the, at, at, for the cops is, is the dynamic between power versus influence. So uh, what we teach, well, let's, let's do this. If you have a family member and they have a mental illness, whether they suffer from a personality disorder, a, a psychotic disorder, whether they're diagnosed with schizophrenia, and they go into crisis at 2 in the morning, if your family member goes into a mental health crisis at 2 in the morning, who do you call? Well, if you call me, that's expensive. I hate to say it that way, but it just is. Okay, I, I work on the therapeutic hour, and I charge by the hour. Okay, and, and so if I get out of bed at 2 in the morning and drive across town to deal with you in your crisis, you're going to write me a check. I don't offer on-call emergency services, and so I charge double my normal rate if I go out, of, out at night like that. You know what it costs to dial 911? <laughs> That's a free phone call. So my family member is in some kind of mental health crisis, and I dial 911. Now, when you dial 911, they have three options. A kid with a fire hose, that young man who's a fireman, a kid with a box of Band-Aids, the, the paramedic, or the kid with a badge and a gun. Now, guess who they send? The kid with a badge and a gun. There's already implied force. There's something I want somebody to do, and I can't make them do it, or I'm afraid, don't send me a paramedic, don't send me a rescue guy, send me a guy with a badge and a gun. He has force multipliers on his belt. And so when a young police officer shows up and somebody's acting a fool, whether they're in control or out of control, what the police officers are trained in is ask, tell, make. And you go through that procedure. Now, if I ask you and you don't comply, my spider sense goes off. Because a person who's not compliant is a threat to you. And they get reinforced that at the police academy all the time. Because if you tell me to put my, and I get to play bad guy for the cadets all the time. And if you tell me to put my hands in the air and you let me get away with this rather than this, action beats reaction. I'll take anything away from you you've got. And that's just the way it is. So uh, this person's in crisis. This young police officer shows up and realizes this is not something I'm trained for. And what I tell the cops when they come to my class, because sometimes they, they come to class because they're interested. Sometimes they come to class because they're made to come to class. Uh, I climb trees. I used to own a ropes course. And so I'm a certified tree climber as well. Well, when you climb a tree... Every now and then you get into a tree to cut a dead limb or to repair a cable, and you run into this thing called a bee's nest. Well, I'm not a beekeeper. I'm not interested in beekeeping. In fact, I'm at perpetual animosity with bees in the world. I'm just like Saul and the Amalekites. I don't want anything to do with bees. But when I get into a tree, sometimes there's bees. And although I didn't sign up to be a beekeeper, and although I don't want to be a beekeeper, as part of my natural interactions with the wild world, I'll run into bees. Well, a cop didn't sign up to be a therapist, but they're going to call you, and they're going to send you. So you need some skills that go beyond ask, tell, make. Now, ask, tell, make is about power. We talk about the uh, force continuum, officer presence, verbal commands, 
empty-handed technique, force multiplier, deadly force. And it ramps up there pretty fast. So we tell the cops, when you show up to somebody who's not a danger, nobody's in danger, and they're not committing a crime, you don't need ask, tell, make. You need to change something. And you know what we teach them? Number one, we teach them active listening. Active listening means your conversations don't look like this. They look like this. Now, I'll go ahead and say this is not a marriage seminar. That's a skill you need to be a parent and a husband. That's a skill you need to be a minister. That's a skill you need to be an elder. Because when we have conversations with people, it's often understand me, no, understand me, no, no, understand me, no, no, understand me. And if I can demonstrate, hey, I understand you. Now, I don't have to agree with you. I don't even have to think it's reasonable or rational. But if I can demonstrate that I see the world from your perspective, that active listening shows you that I care about you and I have empathy. And that's it. You, know, you walk into a place and a, and a guy is hallucinating and he's throwing cans at a dragon in Walmart. Well, I go, sir, I don't see a dragon. But I bet if you do, it's frightening. Yes. The minute you get that yes, you tell your, your son who's frustrated with the coach, I bet you think nobody understands how frustrated you are. Yes. Tell your wife, I bet you think nobody understands how busy you feel, how tired you are with little kids at home, how neglected you feel when I work over. Yes. Anytime you get a yes, and I can demonstrate to you that I see the world from your perspective, that's empathy. So once you have active listening and once you have empathy, you create this thing known as rapport. That's a connectedness. That's an alignment. And once I have rapport with you, I have influence. And once I have influence, I can affect behavioral change. By the way, that's out of the playbook for hostage negotiation. That's what the FBI teaches in their hostage negotiation stuff. That's in a book by Mark Golston called Just Listen. So when you think about the power of God, and then you think about the influence of God, it's really interesting that Hebrews chapter 4 says, or chapter 5 says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was on all points tempted just like his. God came and lived like one of us so he could have influence with us. John chapter 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word there is the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That's just fun to say, by the way. But a tabernacle is a tent. The word became flesh. God came camping. He lived in a tent like you live in a tent so that he could share our perspective and sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus was tired. Jesus was hungry. Jesus was abused. Jesus had anxiety. Jesus tells the disciples, my soul is anxious even to the point of death. He lies on the face in the, in the garden and he either is sweating such great drops of sweat that it looks like blood or he either burst his capillaries in his forehead and the blood came out with the sweat. He understands anxiety, he understands, he understands betrayal. He understands being misunderstood. He understands conflict. And so all those things God did to align himself with us so that we could have a compassionate high priest. So if we're going to be men, we need to abandon the idea of being men of power and start thinking about being men of influence. And so Paul writes about this in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, Paul has this unique relationship with the church at Philippi. 
I probably spent less than 21 days there. I guess it all depends on how you translate the idea of many days. He shows up in town. They go out to a place of prayer by the river. He converts a lady named Lydia. They go into town and, and start teaching. A, a girl with an unclean spirit follows them around saying, these men are servants of the Most High God. These men are servants of the Most High God. These men are servants of the Most High God. You tell me how long you could preach with that going on behind you. The Bible says not in, in many days. I don't know if that's 4 or 14. Paul gets tired of this. And Paul had a short fuse, by the way. He'd strike a man blind. <laughs> and so he cast this demon out. The guys who own this girl say, hey, we've lost our ability to tell fortunes. They put him in jail. At midnight, there's an earthquake. The Roman soldier who's in Philippi was a Roman retirement colony. These are retired Roman soldiers. This is an easy gig for him. He's keeping, you know, local rowdies in jail. Nobody important. But if you're a Roman soldier and you're guarding Roman prisoners and they escape, whatever was supposed to happen to them happened to you. So he's got an empty jail according to this guy's perception because there's an earthquake at midnight and there's no electric lights. So he picks up that short sword that he retired with and he's going to kill himself. And Paul says, hey, don't kill yourself. We're all here. They baptize this guy and his household. The next day, the magistrates come and, hey, we need this Paul guy to go out the back door. Paul said, hey, we're Roman citizens. They beat us without a trial. If they want me to leave, let them come escort me out. They go out. They go to Lydia's house. They strengthen the brethren. They leave town. Paul's encounter with these people may be less than 21 days. And yet you read this letter that he wrote them, and they are connected. He writes this letter, and you feel like these guys have been friends and lived in each other's homes for years. And they probably spent less than 21 days together. So how did they get to be so close? Influence. They were ministering to Paul while he was in town, and they ministered to Paul even after he left town because they sent him gifts, they sent him helps. And so when Paul talks to them about the dynamic of their interaction, he, he's going to give them some prescriptions, things they should do, and some proscriptions, things they shouldn't do. And here's what Paul says, Philippians chapter 2, start at verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in lowliness of mind or humility, esteem others better than yourselves, and each of you should not look out for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. So... Paul, writing to this church, tells them. He said, here's some things you can't do, and here's some things you have to do. Number one, don't do anything you do in any aspect of your life out of selfish ambition. Now, gentlemen, we tend sometimes to be selfish. We tend to be self-centered. We tend to be self-seeking. We tend to be self-serving. Especially when we misunderstand the submission passages in the Bible. When you read Ephesians chapter 5, you'll find that what it describes is that Jesus was submissive to the needs of the church. And therefore, the church submitted to him. So the first thing he says is don't do anything that you do, and that's with your spouse, with your friends, with your neighbor and your congregation, in your business or in your athletics. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition. If somebody said, hey, Lonnie, we're going to bring you into town, and you can speak one time to one audience on one topic, what would you speak on? I would speak on selfishness. Because if you can get a handle on selfishness, you get a handle on everything else that deals with Christianity. 
Number one, selfishness is the common denominator behind all sin. James chapter 1, verse 13, we're vulnerable to temptation not because of what we want, but that we want. And everything that I'm tempted to do is because of something that can lure me or entice me, bait in a trap or the, a lure on a fishing line. Every sin that, that we do, the common denominator behind all sin is selfishness. And my sin, whatever it is, is irrelevant. Your sin, whatever it is, is irrelevant to me. Your sin, my sin, is the personal manifestation of selfishness in our lives. And so we start thinking about don't do anything out of selfishness. That's going to be the cure for helping us insulate ourselves from temptation and, and modify. If we can change what we want, we change how we're tempted. And if we change the things that we want to line up with what is good, right, and true, the short list of the fruits of the Spirit, then sin doesn't become a big problem. The common denominator behind all sin is selfishness. Number two, selfishness is the antithesis of love. Now, the antonym of love is hate, but the antithesis of love is selfishness because love thinks about the other person where selfishness only thinks about myself. Even people who hate me think about me because they hate me. They write me nasty grams and send bad things and have bad thoughts and wish bad things. When I'm only absorbed in myself, I don't think about anybody else. I'm, other, I'm unaware of others. I'm self-absorbed. And so selfishness is, is the antithesis of love. Selfishness is the opposite of Christianity. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, what's the prerequisite? Deny your, take up your cross and follow me. If you can't get self out of the way, you can't pick that cross up. And if you can't get self out of the way, you can't follow the Messiah. And then if you measure, hey, is this person spiritually mature? And your spiritual maturity, and we'll talk about that with internals versus externals later, Lord willing, your spiritual maturity is not about the number of appearances you make in an assembly. It's not how much money you give at a thing. It's not how many mission trips you go on. It has zero to do with things you do. Spiritual maturity is about what you are, qualities you possess, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and control of the self. And if we can't manage this monster called self, we can't be men, we can't be godly men, and we can't be men of God. And so when you start thinking about th this, this self thing, and in fact, Jesus says in order for you to understand, have any relationship with anybody, love your neighbor as your inherent to the Christian ethic is, is getting a handle on this monster. Because if I think too highly of myself, I'm a narcissist. And if I think too lowly of myself, then I'm a doormat and, and, and I'm giving in and giving up all the time rather than just giving to people. And when you treat your wife, you know, my wife's needs come before my rights. Every time. That, that's without debate. The needs of the weaker supersede the rights of the stronger. But as a guy who's been married 38 years... Her likes and her wants sometimes go ahead of mine <laughs> just because I'm smart enough to do that, okay? They told me where I wanted to eat on my birthday. It was my birthday, but they didn't like my choice, so I went where they wanted me anyway. But if, if I give to my wife, that's one thing. But if I have such a low value of myself that I give in and give up, I tend to keep score. And people who keep score always feel like they're losing 
And so understanding love your neighbor as yourself, I'm created in the image of God. The Son of God died for me. That gives me a chance to say I'm worth something in God's eyes. I'm not worthy, but I'm worth something. So I'm not a narcissist because everything I've got, I was given, but I'm neither this codependent, avoidant person because of what God has done for me. So Paul says, number one, nothing you do in your interaction with other people can be done out of selfish. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition. Number two in this text is don't do anything out of vain conceit. Don't do anything out of this idea that I've got this inflated price tag on myself, that I'm somehow worth something that is overinflated. Because conceit is one thing, vain conceit's another. There used to be an old Western called the, the Guns of Will Sonnet. And old Walter Brennan would say, no brag, just fact. Well, there's some things that are factual, but a lot of times we get wrapped up in, in, in being braggadocious. Um, and I get it, there's some smart guys in the room. There's some successful guys in the room. There's talented guys. I, I got it, okay? My daughter is four foot ten inches tall. She played Division I volleyball. They paid her $1,000 for every inch of height she had. I just wish she'd been a little taller, okay? So, so we're driving out in the country, and, and then I said, now, sweetheart, I said, you're probably the only D1 athlete to come out of Madison County High School. It's just a fact. But when you get down to your university, you're not the only D1 athlete they've ever seen. You're nothing special. They got 28 kids lined up to take your spot if you decide you don't want to do what the coach asks you to do. But please understand this about your incredible talent. And, and, and her talent was, was pretty incredible. I got a picture of her. Her toes are on the ground. Her knees are on the ground. And her ponytail is on the ground. And she's dodging a ball, letting it go out of bounds. That's how fast she is with her reaction. She has her mother's eye-hand coordination. She's an incredible little athlete. I don't know why she didn't do tumbling at four foot ten, but volleyball was the thing she wanted to do. But I said, but let me just ask you this. What did you do? Now, and I realize you've worked hard to be a volleyball player, and you put in the time, and you put in the reps, and you put in this. I, I got it. But what did you do to deserve to have legs that would move like that? What did you do to have hands that will stretch out and bend? What did you do to have eyes that will track a volleyball? What did you do to have a brain that could coordinate eye-hand movement to, to read the trajectory of that ball? You realize everything you've accomplished, you've accomplished on the back of a gift that you didn't do anything to get. You have your PhD, you own your own company, and you're a skilled carpenter. I, I get it. But what did you do to have those hands or that brain or those eyes or just a simple fact that you can ambulate? So it's very easy for us to get wrapped up in what we've accomplished. And I think there's a certain amount of stewardship that says you've been given these abilities and these talents that, that goes with that. But the bottom line is I can't be conceited about that because I didn't do anything to deserve it. I didn't, what did you do to deserve to be born in America? If you were born in America, regardless of how you got here, if you were born in America, you won the lottery. What did you do to deserve to be born in Southern America? You got up this morning and ate a meal that the vast majority of the world would, would not eat, could not eat. You put on a pair of shoes. You're in the top 10% of everybody walks on this planet. You had a choice which pair of shoes to put on. 
You had fresh water to drink and fresh water to bathe in. And you, probably nobody walked over here. You drove. We've been given opulence. And for me to go, look what I've accomplished. Look what I've done. Look what I've made. Look what I've built. Look what I've learned. Look what I've studied. That's foolishness because it's vain conceit. Self-made men worship their maker. And that's a monument to unskilled labor. So Paul says, if you want to understand the difference in power and influence, number one, you can't be selfish. And number two, you, you can't be conceited. Now, there's an old preacher's story, and as I get a little older, I, I don't know if that means it's a story old preachers tell or if a story that's been around so long they call it an old preacher's story. But there's a big hoodle doing, there's a big dinner on the grounds in Texas, and people are coming through the line, and they're getting fed, and the lady behind the table is handing out chicken fingers. And this big guy standing in line, she puts three chicken fingers on his plate. He says, hey, I'd like to have more than three chicken fingers. And she said, well, you can only have three chicken fingers. He said, well, I, I would like to have more. I'm a big guy. I get hungry. Well, sir, I, I can only give you three chicken fingers. He said, well, I want more than three chicken fingers. She said, you can only have three chicken fingers. He puts his plate down and says, madam, do you know who I am? And she was, she was shocked. She was chagrined. She didn't know. She'd been confronted. She said, no, sir, I, I, I don't know who you are. He said, madam, I'm the governor of the great state of Texas. She said, Governor, I apologize. You look taller on TV. I didn't recognize you without a suit. Please excuse me for not recognizing your eminence. She said, but do you know who I am? He said, lady, I have no idea who you are. She said, I'm the lady that hands out the chicken fingers. <laughs> and it really doesn't matter who you are. If you're on the wrong side of the table, guess what? It don't matter because if you're not in charge of the chicken fingers, guess how many you get? Three and bounce down, okay? So don't do anything out of selfish ambition. Number two, don't do anything out of vain conceit. But opposite of selfishness and conceitedness, but in lowliness of mind, in humility, esteem others as better than you. Now this is a cognitive shift. This is an intentional thought process that says, I'm going to look at you differently, and I'm going to look at me differently. And looking at you differently starts with looking at me differently. And I'm going to have to elevate your worth and lower mine. And, and that's intentional. One of the best definitions I ever heard for love was love is the intentional and, if necessary, personally costly investment into the good of another. It doesn't require reciprocity, return of investment. And you don't have to be deserving for me to love you. So Paul says, look, you can't be selfish and you can't be conceited. But what you're going to do is you're going to take a look at yourself. You're going to take a look at other people. And when you choose who's the most valuable person in the room, you're always going to choose them. That's it. it it's cognition. I'm going to change the way I see myself. I'm going to change the way I see you. When Paul talks about changing in the book of Romans, he says, don't be conformed, but be transformed. How does transformation take place? By the renewing of your mind. Whoever controls your head controls your body. That's a jujitsu principle, by the way. It's in a little book called Grappling with Life, Controlling Your Inside Space. There's 10 principles that are based in jujitsu that talk about how to control your inside space. And whoever controls your head controls your body. And that's, that's physically, if, if I grab you by the head or pin your head to the ground, there's, there's only certain things you can and can't do. But whoever controls your thought process controls the choices you make. And how you see yourself and how you see others depend, changes how you treat them. Nothing selfish, nothing conceited, 
but in lowliness of mind and a cognitive shift, I'm going to esteem others as better than me. And then you don't look out just for your interest, but you look out for the interest of others. If I can sit down with a couple and start talking to them either in pre-marriage or, or after they've been married, and, and I'm listening for me, my, and I, and I'm listening for us, we, and our. And when I hear a sense of usness, I've got a strong marriage. And I get a me, my, and I, I don't have a marriage. Uh, I was at a conference one time, got to hear Muriel Hemingway speak. That's Ernest Hemingway's granddaughter. And she just had to spell illness and had to spell wellness. You know the difference between illness and wellness is I versus we. When a group of people or, or a, a group gets together and there's I, then you have illness. And when there's a sense of we, there's wellness. In your church, if it's ever the elders against the members or us against them, if there's any kind of dichotomy, if I can divide you over anything, you will compete. That is your nature. And so instead of thinking about just me, I have to think about us. And so not just looking out for my interest, but also looking for the interest of others. That's that attunement. Do I understand your world and can I respond to it? That's where when you talk about marriages, you talk about love languages. When you talk about churches, and uh, I don't want to shock everybody, but Michelle Davis says the person in the marriage who is least interested in sex controls it. Now you think about that as a dynamic. Suppose I got to hunt as much as my wife was interested in it. I might as well sell stuff. Suppose my wife got to watch NCAA basketball as much as I was interested in it. I'm five foot four. I don't care anything about basketball. Last time I played basketball, somebody blocked a shot with their knee. I'm done with that sport. I'm out, okay? My number in basketball is five because that's how many fouls I got. Bring that weak trash into my lane, okay? If on the last great day you have any fouls left, you are wrong. My wife filled out four brackets. My wife chose to have foot surgery yesterday so she could sit on the couch, watch basketball, and take hydrocodone. This is the greatest weekend of her life. She's, she's watching the Elite Eight or the Sweet 16 and, and has a reason she got her foot in a boot and can't move. She says, I have to watch basketball all day. Well, if she got to watch basketball as much as I was interested in it, she wouldn't watch basketball. The person in your church who is the most reactionary and against everything controls it. I know that's a weird place to start when you say the person in your marriage who's least interested in sex controls it. That gets everybody's attention. But that person who plays the I'm the weak brother card is not thinking about the interest of others, the only thing about himself. And then let's understand something about the weak brother. I'm chasing a rabbit here, but we'll get back to Philippians 2 in a minute. I'm not a strong swimmer. Okay? Again, the five-foot-four thing comes into play. What's deep water for you is deep, not deep water for me, okay? And deep water gets fast on me, all right? I've been in two good boat wrecks. I had two perfectly good boats leave out from under me. I spent an hour and a half floating on a cooler in the Tennessee River. I'm a weak swimmer. And I will not get in a boat without a life jacket. And with all due respect to the assembled gentlemen here, there's not enough men in here to put me in a boat without a life jacket. I don't get in boats without life jackets. 
and I'll fight you over it. The brother in your church who says, I'm against it, and I won't do it, and I'll leave, and I'll withdraw my contribution, and I'll get a faction of people to fight with me, that's not a weak brother. He's immature. He's cantankerous. He's divisive, but he's not weak. The definition of a weak brother is, hey, Lonnie, let's get in the boat. I don't know. I don't feel good about that. Lonnie, let's, let's, let's get in the boat. Well, I need a life jacket. You don't need a life jacket. We're not going out very far. There's not a lot of wind. It's not very deep. The weak brother will get in the boat and feel uncomfortable about it. The person who won't get in the boat without the life jacket will fight you. He's not weak. He's just immature and rude and selfish. But we played that I'm the weak brother, you're going to offend me card in order to control congregations. And that's not what Romans 14 talks about. And it's been overplayed. Because if he'll fight you about it, he's not weak. It's when you can talk him into doing something he's uncomfortable with and he feels like he's doing wrong and it bothers it. That's a weak brother. But this guy over here who, who's drawing battle lines and fighting, he's not weak. He's just mean. Don't look out just for your interest. But look out for the interest of others. So now Paul's made some pretty serious points. Don't be selfish. Don't be conceited. Change the way you see yourself. Change the way you see others. And, and, and don't just be self-absorbed, but be other aware. And then he talks about Jesus. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who, Christ, being in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, or one version says it wasn't inappropriate for him to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and taking on the very nature of a man, he humbled himself and came in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death on the cross. So the manliness of Jesus. How did Jesus make his footprint? How did Jesus make his implant on the world? Well, first of all, he's God. You've got to have the same attitude. You've got to have the same mindset. That, that Don't be selfish. Don't be conceited. Change the way you see yourself. Change the way you see others. And don't just look out for your interests, but look out for the interests of others. Let me show you what that looks like in a three-dimensional print. This is Jesus. And he was in the very nature God. And it wasn't inappropriate. It wasn't a faux pas to be equal to God. So if you walked into the throne room of heaven and you got three thrones, you go, oh boy, I don't know what the protocol is. Which throne do I bow in front of? You bow in front of any of them because they're all God. Now that's hard for us to wrap our minds around. I don't think I fully understand the Trinity. I do know in John chapter 1 when they taught us Greek, it was in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, personal name for God. And then the Word was God, not the personal name for God, but just the word God. It's missing the definite article in Greek. So how do you translate that? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God? No, no, no. There's only one God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was deity? That's probably pretty accurate, but we don't put our handle on it very well because we don't understand deity. So in my mind, I go, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was the same substance as God. Now, the, the, And this is not accurate 100%, but it's, it gives me a handle. If I take a glass of water and put it right here, what's the chemical formula for water? H2O. 
I take that water and I reduce the temperature to 32 degrees Fahrenheit, zero degrees Celsius. It becomes a hydroxide. We call it ice. What's the chemical formula for ice? That'd be H2O. If I take that water and I heat it up and there's a water vapor above it, what's the chemical formula for water vapor? H2O. 100% water, 100% water, 100% water. It's absolutely 100% the same thing, but it has three distinct manifestations. Now, there's a doctrine called modalism that says God can only exist in one form, and that's not what this teaches. Now, I've been walking in the woods deer hunting, and the top of that creek will have a layer of ice on it, and underneath that creek will be flowing water, and above that creek will be water vapor. 100% water, 100% water, 100% water. It's all God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Jesus in John chapter 18 is in the garden. He's talking to God about the Spirit. It's all God. And Jesus as the Son of God, Jesus as the Messiah, was the same as God. And God came to earth. Now God could have come to earth and flexed power. You realize that, right? Jesus, and this is kind of, I don't want you to think I'm being cavalier or blasphemous or disrespectful, but Jesus could have come to earth and, and had rock star status. I mean, he, he could have said, hey, I'll be doing miracles at the Coliseum. And every night, every event, every venue, standing room only. Right? But how many times did Jesus withdraw from popularity? How many times did Jesus withdraw from earth? How many times did Jesus do something and say, don't tell anybody what I've done for you? Jesus didn't come to be a rock star. Jesus could have been the most powerfully rich man on the planet. If you can turn stones into bread, you can turn stones into gold. How'd you like to have been a business partner with Jesus? I'd like to own a restaurant with Jesus. Call it Ring a Biscuit, Feed Everybody. <laughs> Sir, what would you like to drink? What would you like? Well, what do you got? We just take it to the back and it comes out. Trust me. <laughs> we got this guy in the kitchen who's off the chain. I mean, he could have been super, super successful in any capitalistic investment he wanted to do. Foxes have holes, birds have nests. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He wasn't an entrepreneur. He wasn't interested in that kind of stuff. He owned one outfit and they gambled over it when they murdered him. Jesus, Jesus could have been a military leader. Peter, in his inept attempt to defend the Messiah, whips that sword out. Jesus says, hey, put your sword away. Don't you understand my Father will give me access to 12 legions of angels? Assuming that he's using the term legion so Peter can do the math, a Roman legion had 6,000 men. 12 legions of angels is 72,000 angels. We sing the song, he could have called 10,000 angels. We miss it by 62,000 angels when we sing that song. One angel in 2 Kings kills 185,000 Syrians in one night. And we're not even told it was armed. So if the batting average of an unarmed angel is 185,000 men, how much damage can you do with 72,000 of them? And assuming they're the hand-picked angels who are the personal bodyguard of the Messiah, you probably have some heavy operators here. You think there may be one archangel in the bunch? I was in Miami, Florida, made that statement. People walking out the building, a guy showed me this visitor's card. It looked like Wile E. Coyote had had a hold of it. He had numbers and diagrams and symbols. He said, what you said about the angels piqued my curiosity. He said, if you give me a 10-hour day, 
in a kill ratio of 185,000 per, you destroy today, today's world's population in 3.36 hours. Before I can drive back to Huntsville, everything big enough to die is dead if you turn those 72,000 angels loose. And yet, although Jesus could have been the most powerful military force ever to touch this planet, the Bible says he, he became a servant. Special word there for servant is bond servant. Not diaconoi, not our deacons, but a bond servant. You bring a bond servant to your house, he's young, he's poorly educated, he's very cheap, he washes people's feet, and you buy one for 30 pieces of silver. You know how to be a real man? It's not about the throne you sit on. It's about abdicating that throne and washing the feet of people who will betray you. It's not about this power thing of the things we accomplish or the things we have, but it's how we serve. And you look through the pages of the Old Testament and some of the most influential people on the planet in the Old Testament were what? Servants. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, prisoners of war who served Nebuchadnezzar with integrity for God. You've got Naaman the leper who has captured a little girl. And I, have you ever thought about this? They've gone on a raid. They've captured a teenage girl, brought her to their house as a prisoner to do housework. You ever tried to get your teenage daughter to do housework? If, they captured Nebuch if, if, if Naaman had captured my daughter and then said, oh, I've got leprosy, she'd have said, good, I hope your head rots off because she hated to do housework. But this little girl who's a prisoner of war in Naaman's house said, you know, if you knew the prophet in Israel, you wouldn't have leprosy. He goes to Israel and the prophet says, go dip in the Jordan River. He has a fit. Has a, and his servant, hey, look, if he asked you to kill a dragon, would you do that? Yeah, then why not just wash and be clean? Esther, a little girl, a little Jewish virgin who's handpicked to be part of the harem, goes on a date with the king and ends up being the queen. I guarantee you it's not because of her sexual prowess. Because what does a little Jewish virgin girl know that the Babylonian girls don't? This is the king of Babylon. He can have anything he wants sexually. And what did this little Jewish girl do to change his mind that she becomes queen? Well, his first queen refused an order. Now, maybe it was inappropriate for her to refuse the order he gave her because he wanted to parade her in front of a bunch of drunk men. But this little Jewish girl's poise... And her demeanor made her stand out from all these other girls. Why? She's a servant. You look through the pages of the Bible at how powerful servants are. And then Jesus himself will say, I, I'm a servant. And a disciple who's fully trained will be like his master. And if my master is a servant, the greatest thing I can ever hope to become is a servant. And if you want to change how manly you are in your community, in your home, in your church, on your sports team, or even at your company, you take on the role of the servant, and then you will understand the differential between power or influence. Because people with influence can facilitate people to change and do, and people who only wield power try to make people do things.
you can make people do, but you can only make them do at a certain level. When you learn to lead people and influence people, you can cause, you can cause change in people that they'll die for. Because when Jesus was a servant to his men and his men became servants, they all died serving him. So gentlemen, if you want to understand about the manliness of Jesus, the first step is to understand the difference between power and influence. All right, Kyle, let's take a break.